Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 10. And as Adam mentioned, we are back in Romans after a bit of a hiatus. So we had our vision series, which lasted three or four weeks. And then before that, we had uh, our Advent series through the month of December. But now we are back in Romans, and we're going to pick up where we left off. So we left off at the end of chapter 9, and we're going to resume by jumping into chapter, chapter 10. This morning, we will cover verses 1 through 13 as we continue in this series. Uh, about a week ago, Janine and I were watching this uh, fascinating new documentary on Netflix called The Deepest Breath. And uh, it's, it tells the story of f- athletes in these, this, I guess you call it an extreme sport or this fringe sport called free diving. So what free divers do, unlike, you know, regular scuba divers is they dive into the depths of the ocean. But what they do before they dive, they take one big breath and then they, they descend without any scuba gear, without any equipment. And so it's a very frightening thing. And they will actually descend 50 meters, 60 meters, 80 meters, 100 meters into the depths of the ocean on one breath. Now think about 100 meters, that's that's 328 feet. That's more than the length of a football field. And when you get down past 50, 60 meters, uh, the ocean just becomes totally black. Can't see anything. It's complete darkness. And it's one thing, I guess, to get all the way down to 50, 60, 80 meters, uh, but then you have to get back up. And you have to swim all the way back up to the surface. And again, this is all on one single breath. And what happens a lot of times, what we learn from this documentary, is people will make it to whatever their goal is, and then they start to head back, and they, they, they need to take a breath, and so sometimes they will panic, sometimes they black out, they have to be rescued uh, 10, 20 meters from the surface, and sometimes, actually not infrequently, people die. Uh, well, the, the, this documentary tells the story of one particular free diver. Her name was Alicia, and she wanted to break the world record of 104 meters or whatever, and she did that. Um, it nearly cost her her life, and then she wanted to try. There's a place uh, called the, the Blue Hole outside of Belize, right on the, the coast of Belize, and there, it's, a, it's a very unique, beautiful place that free divers like to go, but in the, in the Blue Hole... Uh, is down at the very bottom is something called the arch. And it is what you might imagine it to be. It is a, an arch at the bottom of the, the blue hole. And what divers do is they try to get down to the goal. And, and uh, no, only one person has ever done this, and it nearly cost her her life. But they try to go down, swim under the arch at 100 meters, and then back up to the surface. Now, one of the challenges they face is you can get down under the arch of course, remember, you're holding your breath the whole time, and you can lose uh, track, it's totally dark, of how to get out from under the arch. And so what has happened as this, uh, again, this documentary uh, told is that people try to do this every year. Hundreds of people every year try to do this and die. They try to do it, and it's cost, it's more perilous than uh, climbing Mount Everest. Um, it's, it is such a fatal uh, thing to do. And so, you know, what do you think you're asking? What do you think we're asking as we're sitting and watching the documentary? It's why? Why would you ever do this? In fact, we found ourselves not even talking about it. We kept taking these deep breaths in, feeling like we too might suffocate. It's a, again, it's a fascinating thing to watch. But we say, why, we think, why would you do this? If you know you can't do it, 
Why try? Why even try? Well, sadly, that same logic has been used in Christian circles uh, throughout history in different places and at different times as it relates to obeying God's commands. There are some who say, look, if you know you can't possibly obey God's commands, then why strive for holiness? Why make an effort? Why even try? It's kind of flared up in the early 2000s and what some people called uh, celebratory failureism. That is people just saying, look, I can't obey. I can't get my act together. I, I, I can't be holy. So why would I even try? Why even strive after holiness? Uh, well, since we do sin every day and since our hearts are, we do have the baggage of the flesh. We do have impure thoughts and impure motives and impure actions. Why should we strive to be holy? Uh, this is a question that Paul will touch on briefly. We're going to look at it today. But, it's, but the answer is especially important as we get into Romans 12 through 16, those chapters. Um, it's going to really play into how we rightly understand those. So in the passage we're in today, the Apostle Paul will address the question, really not, not so much should we obey God's commands, because really that's never in question. And the answer is always yes. But here are the questions that he'll pose. What's the inherent danger in our obedience? I think, did he just say that right? Yeah. What's the inherent danger in our obedience? What happens when we fail to obey? And why should we strive after holiness? So Romans 10, those are the questions we'll answer from the text this morning. We'll make our way through uh, verses 1 through 13. Let me start by reading verses 1 through 4. Paul says, brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the people of Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Romans 10 uh, follows Romans chapter 9. I went to a lot of grad schools to gain that insight. Um, and since we've not been in Romans 9 for a couple of months, let me just kind of uh, give you a quick review. So there was a question that Paul was being asked, or at least um, say it a little differently. There was a question that he was anticipating from this church at Rome. Uh, and that was, hey, you've talked about the glorious power of the gospel, and we hear how the gospel has this ability to transform lives and redeem people and make people new. And and yet, if that's the case, then why is it that so many of the Jewish people who had the law, God's own chosen people, how is it that they've not been transformed by the gospel? Uh, why is it that the gospel has not made the profound impact in the Jewish people? And so this is the question that Paul is anticipating. And maybe even more directly, you say the gospel has all this power, but we don't see it. So has the gospel lost its power? Paul answers that question somewhat broadly in chapter 9. We saw that a few months ago. Paul says, no, all that God has determined to save will be saved. All that God has chosen will come to saving faith. He will bring them to saving faith. But then in chapter 10, he answers a little more specifically as it relates to his fellow Jews. Again, after expressing his deep love for them, his, his concern for them, he says, they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. 
a zeal, but without knowledge. You know, it is, it is possible to be really excited about something, but really not fully understand it, right? I had an opportunity about 20 years ago to speak at a conference in Australia, and, and during an off day, I was able to, to watch a, uh, a cricket match. And cricket, it's not the number one sport in Australia, but it is very popular. And as I watch this cricket, cricket match, you know, of course, the, the whole environment's pretty cool, but I'm, I'm find, I find myself getting really excited about it, getting really fired up, even though I really had no idea what was going on. Cricket's very different, you know, than baseball. Baseball, you have a pitcher, right, at the mound. Uh, in cricket, you have a bowler, so the one who throws the ball is called a bowler. Uh, the ball's different in cricket. In cricket, the, uh, in baseball, rather, the, the runners advance, you know, through bases, first base, second base, and so on. In cricket, the, the runners advance between wickets. Um, a baseball game goes for nine innings, you know, unless it goes into extra innings, and usually two and a half or three hours. Well, a, a cricket match can last three or four days. So, of course, they, they take breaks, but it can go on and on and on. And so I find myself watching this and getting really amped up about it, but I realize I don't know how this whole thing works. I don't understand it really. Well, the Jewish folks at Rome, they were, they were actually fired up about obeying God, but for the wrong reason. They didn't understand the whole point of their obedience. They had a zeal, Paul says, but they lacked knowledge. What knowledge did they lack? What did they have wrong? Well, verse 3 says that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and instead sought to, sought to establish a righteousness of their own. Now, we talked about this idea of righteousness um, in Paul's letter to Rome back in Romans 3 and then Romans 5 and in Romans 9. Uh, but when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he's talking about um, a perfect standing before God. He's talking about a right standing before God. Uh, that is to be declared, legally declared, not guilty for all the, the offenses and crimes committed. And it's, it's a declaration of not guilty that is, that's actually granted. It's not earned or merited. The Jewish folks in Rome that Paul talks about here were, were zealous. They were, they were passionate. They were fired up. But they were fired up about establishing their own righteousness, verse 3. And because of that, they missed out on the righteousness of God. So here's our first point this morning. A burning desire to earn God's approval can be as or more destructive as outright rebellion. Uh, I said I was going to answer the question, what is the inherent danger in our obedience? And of course, the inherent danger is that we might actually depend on or rely on that obedience for a right standing with God. You know, we tend to think that the worst situation a person can be in, and this makes total sense to me, and I'm sure I think this way myself at times, we think the worst situation a person could be in would be in complete outright, outright rebellion against God. I mean, how can it be any worse than to live in defiance to God, to be saying, no, I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to do what you command. I'm not going to uh, follow your will. We tend to think that that's about as bad as it could get. And to be sure, to live in rebellion against God, that's not pleasing to God, right? That's not a good thing. But Paul seems to suggest here that there is a scenario that is perhaps more dangerous because of what it leads to, and that is a passion to obey God for the wrong reasons. If we have kids, you know, we think surely 
It's better if my kids are respectful and have good manners and are in church every week and rather than out partying and living a life of debauchery and revelry, right? Well, yeah, that's, that is good. And you know, just like us, just like we need it, our kids need to be under the ministry of the word. Our kids, are, are, they benefit when they are with God's people, gather together for worship. Uh, but our kids could be in church and just become more and more self-righteous as they depend on their own church attendance, their own manners, their own respectfulness, their own obedience. The fact that the Roman Jews were passionate and excited and full of zeal was not the problem. It was what they were excited about. I tell my sons all the time, God is not impressed with passionless men. Now, thankfully, my boys are not passionless, but a lot of men are. Seems like they don't really get excited about anything except going to work, making money, saving money, securing retirement, maybe taking a few extended weekends. And we're left to ask, where's the zeal for the things of God? Where's the enthusiasm about spiritual things? Where's the desire to lead their family spiritually? See, passion can be good or bad. Passion itself is pretty much morally neutral. The question is, what is it that we're passionate about? The great theologian John Murray says it very succinctly. Zeal is a neutral quality and can be the greatest vice. So the question is, we got to ask, well, what are we really getting excited about? It's not, it's the excitement. To get excited is not the problem. The issue is, what is, what is it we're excited about? Passion misdirected, Paul says, is one of the greatest dangers. In the case of the Jews at Rome, their passion was to secure a right standing with God by their strict obedience, and it was a hopeless endeavor. It was never going to work. It could never work. Because just like each one of us, they had fallen infinitely short of God's standard of perfection, and there's no way they could work themselves out of that predicament. So what Paul makes it clear is that there are people who are zealous to obey God and passionate about being a good person and yet still unsaved. They, they want to be a good person and still they're unreconciled to God. Despite their zeal, or we could maybe even say, and I want to be careful with this, because of their zeal, their desire to make it on their own terms, they are far from God and, of course, in a very dangerous predicament. And I wonder how many of us obey God because we think that it will make God love us more or approve us more. I wonder how many of us are zealous to be a good person. You know, we want to be a good person, but for the wrong reasons. It's a problem for every human being, but especially us, I think, here in this part of the world, in this part of the country and in the South. I was talking with a man last week who spent much of his life in the D.C. area, and he was recounting how different it is here in the South. He said, hey, when I was in D.C. And, and I went to church on a Sunday morning, and on my way to church, I would invariably see people out mowing the lawn, walking their dog, planting in the garden, playing in the yard, whatever it is. But he said, I don't... I don't think it's the same as much in the South. You know, a lot of people, they're in church on Sunday. Now, of course, you know, the, 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 
problem is the same anywhere. It's not uh, specific to any particular region. We, we all tend to believe we want to go to, our default mode is to go to, to rest in our own obedience, our own ability to resist temptation, the, the really good days we have. But again, Paul asks the question, why is it that we're obeying? What's behind it? Is our obedience to something we're relying on? Or is it out of love for God? Let me, let me give you, maybe you're wondering, I don't know even how to even begin to think through that. Let me give you a few diagnostic questions. When you have a really bad day, morally, do you feel as though God may not love you the same? Feel like God's love for you is, is kind of diminished on, on that bad day? Uh, when you hear the story of someone who's fallen into sin, do you think, I can't believe that person would do that? Or do you think, you know, given the tendencies of my own heart, I'm not shocked by anything. I'm surprised I've not already done that. When you hear about someone else's sin, do you think, oh, they're nothing like me? Or do you think, oh, they're a lot like I am? Depending on how you answer those questions and, and others, you know, when you, when you have a really good day morally, do you, do you think you have a good day and you spend extra time with the Lord in prayer? Do you think, oh, God must really love me more now? Depending on how you answer those questions, you, you might be unwittingly seeking to establish a righteousness of your own. Now, look at what Paul says again in verse 4. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, we say, wait a second. Christ is the end of the law for those who believe? Does that mean that Christians don't have to obey the law of God? Does that mean that we don't have to be concerned about how we live? Does that mean that we don't have to worry about actually coming under God's authority in his word? Well, the answer, of course, is no. The word translated end, as in, you know, the end of the law is a Greek word telos, which can be translated a number of different ways. Goal, Christ is the goal of the law. Culmination, Christ is the culmination of the law. Completion, fulfillment, termination, these are all words that you can be tell us can be rendered as and I think you can make a case for a fair you know interpretation here with several of those this verse has been interpreted in different ways by brilliant godly scholars in fact Baptist theologian Tom Schreiner says that Romans 10 4 is one of the most controverted passages or verses in all scripture or Pauline literature so and I don't claim to have the definitive uh, interpretation here but let me tell you what I think is being said here I think what's being said is that Christ is the goal of the law. In other words, the purpose or the goal of the law is to drive us to Christ. That's the goal of the law, to show us that we need a Savior. Well, how so? Well, New Testament scholar Frank Thielman writes, How does the law do this? It indicts all humanity, Israel included, for not keeping those commands. The law brings knowledge of sin and God's wrath. The law then describes the human plight. And by doing this, points us to Christ. So we discussed the last time of Rome. The law of God was not given to save us. Who could ever keep it? The law was given to us through Moses, you know, and to reveal our sinfulness and to point us to the Savior. Now, how do you think the... You would have received this message that if you were uh, a Jewish person in Rome hearing this argument from Paul, you, you probably would have thought, wait, 
We were given the law. We, we have the law. And of course, we've seen this early in Romans. And it's by obeying the law that a person is right with God. This is, in fact, what the Jewish folks argued. Now, look at verse 5. Uh, Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So the Jews knew the law. Uh, they knew the words of Moses. And here Paul quotes Moses to them, specifically Leviticus 8, 18.5, about a righteousness that is based on the law. And, but then Paul turns the table on them in this, and as he continues on. He basically says, Moses said, dot, dot, dot. But the righteousness that is by faith says, dot, dot, dot. Now look at verses 6 through 8. Um, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend up into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, this is so fascinating, and it can be somewhat confusing as well. Paul is quoting almost verbatim Deuteronomy 30, but he actually changes what it says. So, look at Deuteronomy 30, and I have this behind me on the screen if you don't want to flip over there. So, this is the point in Israel, Israel's history when Moses is he's giving the people the commandments, right? Right before they enter the promised land, and he says... For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea or beyond the abyss that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds like what Paul just said, only he changed some of the words. What is it that uh, Moses says is not far off? It's the commandment. What is it that the people should not ascend to heaven to retrieve? It is the commandment. What is it that's not to be descended into the abyss to retrieve? It is the commandment. Now, look at Romans 10, 6 through 8 again. Paul says... Um, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Okay. Then he goes on to say, or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now remember, so the, the Jews, they knew the old, what we call the Old Testament. They knew the Hebrew scriptures. And what Paul's done here is he's taken the word command in Deuteronomy 30 and he's replaced it with Christ. Paul's taken a passage in Deuteronomy about the law that the people that he's writing to would have known very well. And we, how do you think the Jews would have responded to that? What do you think they would have said? They would have been outraged. They would have said, look, Paul, you're abusing the scriptures. You're, you're playing fast and loose with the Bible. You're twisting the meaning here. Moses told us that it's not too hard to keep God's commandment. It's not far from us. But Paul is actually showing the Jewish folks what Moses actually meant. The previous chapter, Deuteronomy 29, Moses makes it clear that the people will not succeed in obeying God's law. But in fact, they will fail miserably, worship other gods, embrace idols, and be thrown into exile. 
Moses says, you're never going to achieve righteousness by what you do. Well, what needs to happen? Well, Deuteronomy, or Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, they need to be, you need to be changed from the inside. Circumcised at the heart level. They need to have their hearts circumcised. So, in all the ways that the law failed to deliver, insert Christ. That's what Moses does. He came down from heaven, verse 6, to fulfill the law by obeying it completely. Paul says, you can't ascend to him. He's come down to you. This is talking about the incarnation. He descended to the abyss and was brought up from the dead, verse 7. He died and was raised again, Paul says. You can't go down to where he went to lead Christ from the dead, but God has raised him from the dead for you. All that the law commands us to do, but we fail to do, we're unable to do, Jesus did in our place. Lived for us, obeyed the law for us, died for us, and was raised for us. So here's our second point. What we could never obtain through our flawed obedience, Christ secured for us by his, so that all who believe are declared righteous. So I said I would answer the question, what happens when we disobey? Well, depends on who you're trusting or what you're trusting in. If you're trusting in yourself, in your own obedience, in your own politeness or good manners or whatever it is, when you disobey, you just heap on yourself more and more condemnation. But if we're trusting in Christ, then what God does is he looks at Jesus who actually satisfied the law completely for us. So if we're trusting in Jesus, even when we disobey, God looks at us and says, no, that's a sin that Christ lived for and died for. And so he sees us as obedient because of what Jesus has done for us. Now look at verses 9 through 13. Paul goes on to say, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We've seen that before. Chapter 9. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So all of these benefits that we've talked about this morning, that, that right standing with God, the, the freedom of God's forgiveness, the, the, the ability to be declared not guilty for all of our sins, these are all described as those who are, that are given to the one who calls on the name of the Lord. So what that means is regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of what you did even today, Regardless of those sins, maybe the sins that, that you're keeping so deep inside that nobody else even knows about, or you've gone to great lengths to keep secret, regardless of what your record looks like, when God sees you, if you've trusted, if you believed, if you called out in his name, then God sees Christ's record instead. Even if your life has been one of pretending, going to church, obeying for all the wrong reasons, going through the motions, having zeal without knowledge. If you call on the name of the Lord, Paul says, you will be saved. But what does that mean exactly, to call on the name of the Lord? Paul says it involves, one, verse 9, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean 
just saying Jesus is Lord out loud, saying it with your mouth in some sort of, you know, mindless way. That's not, it's not the recitation of some sort of formula or specific words that saves someone. The phrase Jesus is Lord was, was likely actually a confessional formula in the early church, probably even a company baptism. And to say Jesus is Lord was to disavow Caesar as Lord, which in ancient Rome was putting yourself on very treacherous ground. To say Jesus is Lord was to confess that Jesus is the living God. He is the only true Messiah. He is the master of my life. He is the king of creation. He, is, he has authority over everything that's ever been created. To say Jesus is Lord was to center your life around him regardless of the consequences. I was talking with a man this week who told me about some fellow missionaries in Ukraine who were killed by a radical terrorist group called Wagner. This terrorist group buried alive 48 Christians who refused to deny Christ as Lord. I don't know if you ever, I don't know why this came up for the Christmas holiday. It sounds kind of morbid, but we were talking about what's kind of the worst way to possibly die. And, you know, it's not exactly sort of party conversation, but it was our, we were all together. And, you know, you think about a lot of ways to die. I mean, I can't think of one worse than being buried alive, frankly. And they were given the opportunity. If you deny Christ as Lord, this will not happen to you. But if you declare Christ as Lord, then you'll be buried like the ones who've been buried before you, buried alive. Uh, last week, I got a text from one of our missions partners, the president of the Timothy Initiative. We support them at $1,000 a month um, for church planting all across the globe. And here's what the text said. He said, John, thank you for the $1,000 you sent. It wasn't from me. It was from our church, from you, your church. But he said, there's another two and a half churches that will soon be planted. And these are very hard to reach areas. He said, I deeply appreciate your partnership with us. Please keep us in your prayers too. Persecution has increased dramatically in several areas where we work. Last week, we had three of our leaders shot and killed in a single country. And others have died suddenly from accidents, sickness, etc. The enemy is angry. Your prayers are precious to us. These people, in many cases, were given the opportunity. Deny Christ as Lord and carry on your life as you were. Profess Christ as Lord. And your life will be snuffed out immediately. Now, please know I'm not adding any requirement for salvation here. I'm not saying we have to be killed for our faith in order to truly confess Jesus as Lord. But confessing Jesus as Lord will cost us something. Now, it's going to vary depending on where we live and a variety of things. But it will cost us something. It will cost us our comfort. It will cost us uh, some of our goals as we reorient our priorities under the king's priorities, it will cost us perhaps some of our relationships. It will cost us something. So next Paul says that calling on the name of the Lord, verses 9 and 10, means believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the death and resurrection of Jesus are core beliefs of the Christian faith, and you cannot deny Jesus' death or resurrection and be a Christian. You can't deny that he was raised again from the dead and still be a Christian. These must be believed, Paul says, in our heart. This is the only time that Paul ever says something like this. 
which seems sentimental, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying this is a core foundational conviction. The heart was the seed of the, the emotions and the processing and the, really the whole being. He said, it's not just that you say, oh, I believe that Jesus was a real person. And it's one of our elders who taught at our men's breakfast this morning, made it very clear in a very beautiful way. It doesn't just mean saying, oh, yeah, no, I, no I'm not denying that there was a real person named Jesus. Believing is more than that. Believing is to just to put everything, every ounce of trust we have, everything we have goes into Jesus saying, look, without you, I can't be saved. I can't be delivered. I cannot live. You are everything to me. And I'm trusting in your life and your death in my place for my sin and your resurrection as the only way that I can be saved or made right with God. The true Christian is one who's placing his trust in Jesus' deity in Jesus' life and death in our place and resurrection. But it's not a private belief. To believe without ever talking about it is not true faith. Now, I know that may sound very controversial because I've done many, many funeral services. I've done a lot of memorial services. And I've heard a lot of times, well, his was a personal, quiet faith. Say, so what do you mean by that? Well, you know, he never heard him talk about Jesus. Never heard her ever say anything about her faith, but just know that she believed. Well, I'm never in the business of questioning whether someone or not belongs to the Lord. Only the Lord knows that. But Paul seemed to say that, that confession and faith, they, they go hand in hand. These are not two separate things, two separate events, but one. Those who believe and confess are saved from sin and the wrath of God and two a spirit-enabled eternal life with God, which begins right now. And this is true for everyone. You see that word, everyone, all who call in the name of the Lord, regardless of your heritage, regardless of your background, regardless of your past, regardless of your, your race, your lineage, your education, your ethnicity, your skin color, Jew or Greek, Paul says, anyone, anyone who trusts in the name of the Lord will be saved and will not be put to shame, Paul says. That is to say, they will be vindicated. They will not be condemned. They will see what, with their eyes what they believe to be true in their hearts. And this is the case for anyone who calls out in faith in the name of the Lord. It's true for you this morning. It can be true for you. If you maybe feel like, you know, hey, I've been a pretty good person and you're one of these types that you say, you know, I've, I've kind of weighed my good works and my bad works and I've always tried to help people, always tried to be a good person, but you've not really repented from your sins and trusted in Jesus. You've not come to the end of yourself, so to speak. Well, this is for you this morning. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And maybe you're here this morning, maybe you just wandered in, you saw the billboard. That's actually happened. I was kind of surprised, but... We've had people who've seen our billboard on 72. They say, I just thought I would come and visit. We've got a couple in our small group that happened. Um, maybe you, you saw the billboard. Maybe somebody invited you to come to church. Maybe you've been away from God for a long time. You thought, I need to get right with. Regardless of why you're here or how in God's providence you've arrived here, this is for you. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saving faith is a transforming faith. So if I can bring this full circle. To those who trust in Jesus, they approach, their approach to the law of God changes. 
when we are transformed by God through faith in Jesus, we see the law of God as a way to honor and love the one who redeemed us. Not to get something from God, not to improve our standing with God, not to earn God's salvation, but a way for us to demonstrate our love for God, for the one who's redeemed us. Now, the law will always reveal our shortcomings. It always shows us we've not fully measured up. But it also shows us the character of God. See, the contrast that Paul draws here is not between obeying the law and disobeying the law. He's not saying to the Jewish folks at Rome, you're all messed up because you keep striving to obey God. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, oh, you guys are all messed up because you keep trying to do what's right. No, he's not saying that. Again, the problem is not their obedience. The problem is why they were obeying. The problem is their purpose for obeying the law. They were doing it, again, to become right with God. And Paul says, that's not how this works. We obey God's commands because we have been loved by God, forgiven by God, adopted by God, and justified by God. And as we learn to recognize more and more and to rejoice in God's love for us in Christ, his incredible generosity toward us and his son. And the more that we begin to depend more and more on his indwelling spirit, obedience becomes a heartfelt desire rather than an attempt to earn something from God or to save ourselves. Simply put, we strive for obedience, not so that we can be right with God, but because he has made us right with himself by faith, And has given us what we need for moment by moment obedience. So here's our final point. Empowered by the indwelling spirit and the risen Christ, the Christian obeys God from salvation and not for it. See, our salvation is already secure. Christ has already earned it by his active and passive obedience, by his perfect obedience and death on the cross. Those who call the name of the Lord will be saved. Our status with God, again, it's, it's secure. Those who call the name of the Lord will never be put to shame, we're told. But that should never lead to apathy or spiritual complacency. It leads us to grateful, humble, spirit-enabled, gospel-fueled, Christ-empowered effort. Of course, we want to see change in our lives. We want transformation. We want to see spiritual growth. We want to be less angry, less impatient, less lustful, more loving, more generous. We want all those things. But our confidence is not in the commands of Scripture. The Bible shows shows us that if we're willing to trust in actually what's been done, what we call the indicatives, believe in what Christ has done for us at the cross, our lives will change. They will change. This is not some trickle-down preachonomics. This is Christ being present in his word and active in his people as they believe. Those who believe want to obey because Christ has actually instilled in them supernaturally a desire to see their king glorified. And even though, yeah, we're still going to sin. We're still going to fail. We're still going to miss the mark. We're still going to fall and, and have impure thoughts and motives and words and deeds and so on. We can rest easy knowing that Jesus has already kept the law for us. So in that sense, he is the goal and the end of the law. Never again will we be condemned for our disobedience, those who are in Christ. Never again will our future be a question mark for those who are in Christ. 
Never again will we have to fear God's judgment for those who called on the name of the Lord. He is our faithful father. He is our generous king. He is the one who started this work in us. And he is the one who will bring it to completion by his grace, for his glory, and for our good. Let's pray.